Hello and welcome. You're listening to KDRT LP 95.7 FM. This is Karen Modokaitis, host of How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet. I continue my search for answers to improve our lives from people who have helped, who've spent their lives learning, growing, and understanding. And on How She Really Does It, I bring on guests to the show to really dive into issues to help inform, inspire, and empower you towards a better life. I love to hear my listeners' comments about our shows or questions for upcoming guests. You can email me by going to www.howshereallydoesit.com to send me an email. You can also find my Facebook and Twitter links on the website as well as sign up for our weekly newsletter. Past shows are available on the website or as podcasts from iTunes. Janine Roth is the author of eight books, including her New, one of her New York Times bestsellers, When Food is Love, which was one of my favorites from years ago. Janine believes that we eat the way we live and that our relationship to food, money, love is an exact reflection of our deepest held beliefs about ourselves and the amount of joy, abundance, pain, and scarcity we believe we have or are allowed to have in our lives. Janine's latest book is Woman, Food, and God. Janine, hello and welcome. Thank you so much, Corinne. I'm glad to be here. This is a huge pleasure of mine, so thank you. So can you first talk about the whole, how our beliefs really shape our bodies? I just thought that was so insightful. Yeah, I say in the book that the shape of your body is basically a reflection of the shape of your beliefs. So the shape of your body obeys the shape of your beliefs. And one of the things that... um, I write about is that unless you become aware of what your beliefs are, and your beliefs could be, um, I don't deserve to have it, there's no way of getting enough, Uh, food is the only pleasure in my life, I've given up on myself. I mean, that's actually not such a conscious belief, I've given up on myself, but there could be this sense of, failure or the sense of doom or the sense of belief that I'll always be separated from what I love, what I want is impossible, and therefore the only pleasure that I have left is food. Mm -hmm. And so the beliefs that we're constantly running in our minds affect our feelings, which then affect our actions, which also you know, and, and one of the actions that we take is eating, how mm-hmm. we eat, what we eat, when we eat. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's so powerful. That's very empowering for ourselves to realize that it's really our thoughts and our beliefs that create the results in our life. Right. Yes, that's right. I think what people don't understand is that if they lose weight, as so many of us have done 10, 20, 30, 50 times in our lives, without actually looking at questioning and changing, and I use that in a, in a different way than most people, without changing our beliefs, then those very beliefs create the same pattern all over again. Uh, you know, what I write about in Women, Food, and God is that change has to happen on the unseen levels first. Mm-hmm. Unless it happens there, then you're oriented in a particular way. What the book is really about is changing your entire perspective of your relationship to yourself, your life, and, and an outgrowth of that, of course, is your relationship to food. 
Well, isn't it the stories that we tell ourselves that we can continue to retell ourselves about maybe what we deserve or what has happened to us? And therefore that, I mean, a lot of stuff, isn't it tied to, so isn't it the stories that we tell ourselves that keep us stuck? Yes, and but the stories we tell ourselves are reflections of our beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a teacher who said, and I love this, uh, we're all following instructions given to us 10 or 20 or 30 <laughs> or 40 years ago by people we wouldn't ask for street directions from today. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's that. It's, you know, those street directions, so to speak, are our beliefs, our thoughts, and our stories. Mm -hmm. And what I'm speaking about now in the book and in my retreats is understanding that we are, it's sort of like the... um, the hard drive of a computer, mm-hmm. that we, we actually have to question what we're running on. And, and what most of us try to do is change the step from the very top first. Mm-hmm. You know, but you can't, it's sort of like you, you, you can't pretend you're on a PC if you actually have a Mac. Mm-hmm. It's like that. Mm-hmm. You have to know what you're dealing with. And you have to understand and be kind and question and be curious about that rather than judging and shaming mm-hmm. yourself about that. So the first step is curiosity and openness. Because we so often, especially with so many diets, it's about making the good choices on what you eat. Yes. And, and it's not that those things don't matter mm-hmm. because what you put in your body matters. But if food, if you believe that food is the last best only pleasure you have in your life, it doesn't matter what people tell you. Mm -hmm. Because then you're going on, I need this to live. I need this for myself. I have nothing else, and therefore I'm going to eat. Mm -hmm. One of my clients, one of my weight loss clients, um, she was going through the drive-thru continuously and it was this big trigger even though she had fuel foods that you know that were felt really good in her body but she kept having this trigger and so we worked on this and she just emailed me the other day well she we worked on it and she realized the reason that she would go to the drive-through it was because it was a reward for her busy day and so she would go oh see I deserve this because I'm working so hard and I'm so busy and so since she's been able to realize that through the process of inquiry she emailed me yesterday and said, I haven't been to the drive-thru in the last two weeks. Yes. Yes, that's great. That's great. So it's finding out what those triggers are about instead of going, okay, this is what, it's like that dictator self, right? These are the foods that you can eat and only, and so then you're a bad person if you don't eat them. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, I think the, the shame and the deprivation and the judgment I think that's also one of the chapters in the book mm-hmm. and one of the things that I talk about all the time in my work, in my workshops, in my retreats, that never leads to change. Somehow we think that it will, that if we, we shame ourselves enough, we deprive ourselves enough, we punish ourselves enough, we'll end up loving peaceful people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work like that. You know, the means to the end can't be separated from the end. Or another way of saying that is that the process is the goal. Mm -hmm. So how you treat yourself now is what you feel like and who you are when you get to where you think you want to go. And that's huge. And you do talk about that in the book. And I've had my clients um, get your book. And so we've talked about that, you know, because it's not about beating yourself up along the way. And then you're going to be nice to yourself once you get to the destination. 
because you'll still continue to beat yourself up because that's your that's how how you know how to do things. Tell me where right. I'm wrong. Okay. That's right. So we're learning an entirely new way of treating yourself, of being with yourself. So with somebody, say some, a woman is 300 pounds, okay, and with this given example, so she is supposed to be able to, what, find the beauty in herself or find something she can appreciate about herself even right now at 300 pounds? Because what's the alternative? <laughs> <laughs> You're asking me that as if there's an alternative. So what? She's supposed to find the beauty in herself the way she is now? Well, let's see. A or B, <laughs> you know, she finds the beauty in herself. She's curious. She's kind. She's open with herself the way she is now. Or what? She beats and tortures and punishes and deprives herself. Well, and then when you do that, doesn't that lead to more um, self-like de deprecating behaviors and actions? It does, but let's talk about what treating yourself with curiosity and openness okay. and tenderness leads to. Because probably, uh, you know, although this is a hypothetical person, you know, whatever we weigh, if we're overeating, there's some kind of lack of self-regard there. Mm -hmm. There's a lack of kindness. There's a lack of tenderness. There's a lack of compassion. And so we're turning to food for that. If you start giving to yourself what you need by eating the food without eating the food with another kind of food, because kindness is also food. Tenderness is also food. Beauty, taking in beauty with your eyes, knowing that you deserve to have beauty, to see beauty, to be kind to yourself no matter what you weigh. This isn't about, if I weigh this, then I'm allowed to treat myself like this. And if I weigh this, then I have to fear and shame and deprive myself until I weigh this, at which point I'll be allowed to be kind to myself. So what we're learning now are, is a different way to be alive, a different way to relate to ourselves, to relate to our lives here on earth, to relate to these beings that we are, no matter what we weigh. And these kinds of, I don't know what to call it, habits, skills, practices um, are true on any level, at any time, at any weight. But once we start learning how to do this, this spills over into every area of our lives, including our relationship to food. Somebody who's being utterly kind to themselves is not going to want to overeat, is not going to want to eat things that space her out is not going to want to feel uncomfortable in her body. She's going to want to feel great. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't she? This is Corinne Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It. I'm talking with Janine Roth, author of her latest book, Women, Food, and God. And, and that makes so much sense. But Janine, why do we beat ourselves up? Is that just be, it's a learned behavior? I think it is a learned behavior. I think, um, well... You know, there's a chapter called The Voice mm -hmm. in Women, Food, and God. That, and The Voice is a developmental necessity that we have, that we've learned. Um, you know, everybody's got one. It's, you know, Freud called it the superego. We need the voice in order to sort of, you know, fulfill our developmental... Um, uh, 
unfolding, you know, of becoming a fully functioning personality in, in, in this world. We need to know not to put our hands in fire. We need to know not to run out in traffic. We need to, um, you know, know that, you know, not to throw food on the walls when we're at, when we're at friends' houses. You know, we have to learn, you know, some kind of appropriate behavior. The voice, basically, is our parents' voices and, and the authority voices that we've grown up with in the culture that we've internalized. What happens, however, is that that voice, that voice, um, you know, uh, now functions, whereas once it was adaptive and and biologically imperative, at this point it's become maladaptive because it functions as a conscience, but because it does only wants to keep the status quo, status quo. Um, it doesn't want us to change. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't want. It just we. It it sort of doesn't want us to do anything that our parents wouldn't have wanted us to do. Have big luminous lives. Now, even if our parents adored us and we had the most perfect parents in the world, still, still, if our parents weren't utterly enlightened, and although I know it's possible for people to be fully enlightened, usually we don't have parents who are, (laughs) then we learn different ways to curb ourselves, to make ourselves smaller, and to, to tamp ourselves down. So the voice at this point acts as a shaming device, and we need to learn to recognize that. Many of us don't know the difference between ourselves and the voice. That voice, I'll I'll give you an example of the voice. You're eating that? Mm -hmm. I can't believe you're doing that. What is the matter with you? I thought you were never going to do this again. I thought you were never going to eat that kind of ice cream again. Look at the size of your thighs. (laughs) Who do you think you are? Get a grip. You are a failure. You're never going to get this thing right. That on and on and on like that. And we believe that voice. So it's important to learn to name that voice. It's not us. It's not telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And to disengage from it so that we can see how we really feel about something. And what's your voice like, Janine? Well, I think I pretty much gave you an example of it. You <laughs> so know, you of, still have those. <laughs> well, at times. The difference now is that I can recognize that pretty quickly. And I know that it's not telling the truth. And I know it's not me. Mm -hmm. I'm not merged with it anymore. So you can separate it out. It's not ruling you. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we talk a lot with my clients just about being compassionate and being a compassionate observer in your life instead of just beating on oneself. And, and that does take a lot of practice. And I think you're right when you said earlier, it's a practice, it's a skill. It's, it's, you know, it's like learning how to do anything. This is something that is new. And to practice it and continually practice it, that's how we get better at it and recognizing it. Because it, I don't believe that it ever fully leads. Um, well, it takes great effort to become effortless at anything. <laughs> and so it does. It is a practice. And it doesn't matter whether it leaves or not. If you recognize it and you don't get engaged with it, mm-hmm. then it can just keep playing its crazy tunes all day long. <laughs> but if you don't believe them, what difference does it make? 
Our goal is not to get rid of anything. Mm-hmm. It's not to particularly fix something. It's to notice it and know who we are when we're not identified with those voices. It's to recognize our true selves. I like that. Who, to recognize who we are without those voices. Who we are when we're not identified uh, with those voices. When we're not identified with those voices. Yes, I read on your website that you had Byron Katie mm-hmm. on your show, and one of my favorite quotes of hers is, I love my thoughts, I'm just not tempted to believe them. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to hate the thoughts, we mm-hmm. don't have to make them go away, we don't have to, you know, try and try and try and try to make something go away, we just see it, oh, there it is, okay, there it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talk about not attaching to those thoughts. They'll still be there, but right. just don't attach to them. Right. So, interesting. Yes. And, and the inquiry, like, so, yeah, yes, I am very familiar with Byron Katie and the work, and you, you talk about how powerful inquiry is. Can you share with my listeners? Yeah, so I'm not talking about the same, I mean, inquiry is a wonderful name for a questioning process. Mm-hmm. Katie talks about, uh, you know, four questions. I'm not talking about the work that she does. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of inquiry. It's not as prescribed in that way, or not as precise, I should say, in terms of four particular questions that you ask. Mm -hmm. Mine, um, the the kind of inquiry that I was taught, and it's not mine, um, but it's the, the inquiry that I was taught, is about starting with your experience right now, just relaxing, allowing things to be the way they are, and starting with your body, grounding yourself in your body, noticing what your sensations are, basically becoming curious about your experience and, and, and becoming precise about it, knowing where it's located in your body and going from there, asking, you know, how does it affect you to become aware of that. There's, there's a step-by-step process that I list in the book that's a couple of pages long, would take actually too long to go through right now. But the, the most essential part of it, or the sort of laser version of it is, that you begin where you are now. You don't shut anything out. You don't get rid of anything. You don't try to fix anything. You just notice what's happening in your body and begin asking yourself questions about it. Do you find that um, people that you students, your students who start doing this have a hard time feeling at first because they've used food to numb themselves? Um, well, you know, when they come to retreats, we're doing eating meditations. Mm-hmm. So they're not using, we're right there with the food, in vivo with the food. Mm-hmm. So it's a different you know, they're not using food at that moment to numb themselves, or if they are, then we're talking about it right there, right then. So it's a whole different thing. Okay. And is there a lot of emotion? I know you talk about it in the book, but for my listeners who may not have read it yet, um, is there a lot of... You mean not everybody in the world has read the book? Maybe not, but they (laughs) they will be. I know a lot of listeners have bought the book because of this interview. Oh, I'm just teasing you. (laughs) (laughs) But... Could you talk about just the the emotions that do come up when you do those eating meditations? 
Well, anything, really. Anything that you're using food to push down or not feel or express comes up because, of course, when you stop, you see, those of us who are compulsive eaters are basically using food as a drug. Mm-hmm. Where it, I call it the dry drunk. You were, we're just using food mm-hmm. to push the feelings away. Mm-hmm. And, and whatever it is, it could be happiness. It could be joy. It could be, I'm thrilled, but I'm scared to feel this because if I feel this, then other people won't like it. It could be being happy about my own success. Oh, I, you know, God, I feel great, but uh-oh, if I feel this great, will those people around me who aren't as successful or aren't as happy, will they still love me? So, so in that case, here comes the food. We'll just use it to push to push down any threatening feelings, any uncomfortable feelings, or any feelings that we feel will threaten those around us. So the second that we're all sitting around together in a group, 80 of us, eating together and just noticing what comes up, anything from feeling sad to feeling happy to feeling utterly content will come up. And then what's... Is it to sit with those feelings? Um, the very first part of all of that, and, um, you know, again, <laughs> when you say just, just, just sit with those feelings, mm-hmm. what, that, what that really, really is, is, is not, you know, when, when people hear anybody say, so what am I supposed to do, just sit and be? with these feelings, uh, but it's not like that. It's not, you know, we tell ourselves, and this is part of the problem, we have stories mm-hmm. about what we think will happen if we're, if we're sitting, if we're sitting with a feeling. But sitting with a feeling really just is about being aware that we're feeling that and noticing the effect that it has on us to feel it. And so if I'm feeling sad or happy, then I notice, well, where is that in my body? Is it in my chest? Is it in my stomach? Is it in my belly? What does it feel like? When I say I'm feeling happy, what does that actually mean? What's the feeling in my body about that? So sitting with something, Mm -hmm. in quotes, actually means just really paying attention to it, being Mm -hmm. aware of it, noticing what we mean when we say we're happy or we're sad, or we're heartbroken, or we're bored. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And do you think it, it, it doesn't mean what we think it means. That's sort of the upshot of this. <laughs> that was my next question. <laughs> because when, you, when I say I'm feeling sad, usually what I'm telling you, if I, if I told you right now, and I, I, I felt this last night, I was feeling just sort of overwhelmed and sick and exhausted, and um, I realized I had to pay very close attention to actual, the physical sensation and the story I was telling myself about it. Because often when I communicate a feeling to somebody or we communicate feelings to people, what we're communicating is the story, is our reaction to the feeling, not the feeling. Reaction to the feeling. So, um, uh, so I'd be communicating uh-huh. drama and fear and panic and anxiety when really all I was feeling in my body 
was just sort of tired and, you know, congested and, um, you know, uh, like a raspy throat and um, this feeling that, you know, this bodily feeling of needing to sleep. Now, I could feel that or I could go into, oh, my God. I'm leaving on a trip on Sunday. What am I going to do? I'm going to get sicker. There are going to be so many germs on the plane. I'm going to, you know, people are going to sneeze on me that I'm going to get to where I'm going, and then I'm going to be even sicker, that I'm not going to be able to do what I'm supposed to do after I get to where I'm going. And before before you know it, I'm in a full-blown panic. Mm-hmm. And it's about the story, mm-hmm. not about the feeling. Mm-hmm. It's, a stuff it's that- about the thought I'm telling myself. And it has nothing to do even with your circumstances because you're future fondling about what could possibly happen. That's right. I'm just in the story. (laughs) And but, you know, I could be talking to you and telling you and you would, you know, I mean, if you didn't know enough to say to me, um, what's, what's going on? what's going on and it sounds as if you're like you're whooping yourself up Janine in a story um you could get caught up in it too Mm -hmm. you could get caught up in and this is what friends often do with each other oh my god you're right oh you know you should cancel those trips you can't do this you'll keep doing this you'll get sick this is how people get cancer you know before long I'm tired and I'm already Imagining myself in the hospital dying with my friends around me saying goodbye. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's exactly what friends do. I was just thinking of that, too. It's, it's that comforting stuff, and it's like, oh, because that's what we think being a good friend is. It's like, oh, yeah, you're right, you're right, and reinforcing, helping us reinforce our stories even more. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is Corinne Modekaitis, and you are listening to How She Really Does It, and I am talking with Janine Roth author of Women, Food, and God, and she's also the author of one of my favorite books, When Food is Love. And that's how I first came across Janine uh, 17 years ago or so, and she's written many, many books. And um, so, Janine, one of the things that you talk about in your book is about amazement, looking at your life with amazement. Why is that so important? Uh, Well, you know, one of my favorite poems, and I wrote about this in the chapter that you're probably referring to is the Mary Oliver um, poem Mm -hmm. where it's called When Death Comes. And she, there's a line in there that says, when it's over, um, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. Mm -hmm. And isn't that what everybody wants? Mm -hmm. Everybody wants that. I think some of us are afraid to put it in words. Some of us are afraid to say it out loud. You know, what I'm, what the God part of Women, Food, and God um, refers to many, many things. One of the things it refers to for those people who have a satisfying relationship with God, it can be that God. But God is such a big word, and it's as God is such a mystery to so many of us. God, for a lot of us, also means this, this, this big, huge presence or wonder or nameless longing that we have to fulfill the promise of our lives. 
and um, that that's God too, and that that desire to be married to amazement is part of what we all long for. And the question is, how do we do it? How do we get there? How do we live lives like that? And what I'm saying in the book is one of the big, big steps to doing that is to become aware of the life we already have because this is what we've been given and to become curious about what we have and who we are rather than always trying to be someone else. Wow, that's very powerful. Because don't most of us spend try- time trying to be somebody else that we're not yes, good we enough? Yes, we do. When we haven't even found out who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like that old Sufi story of the fool Nasruddin, who um, was um, the 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 border patrol knew that he was smuggling something, and because every day he'd come across with donkeys. And, you know, he'd be riding a donkey, and they knew he was smuggling something. And they get, just kept mm-hmm. on checking the pouches and his backpack and all these bags and stuff that he was bringing across the border, and they could never find anything illegal in there. And they couldn't figure it out. And finally, finally, one of them said, after he got older and he was no longer riding across the border, Nasruddin, tell me now, what were you doing all of those years? And he said, my friend, I was smuggling donkeys. And so it was the donkeys <laughs> themselves that he was smuggling, but the Border Patrol never thought to look in the most obvious place. <laughs> and isn't that what happens when we go and we look at everybody else, or we try to be other people, we put out these stories about other people and how their lives are so perfect. We compare ourselves to that. And we're not even looking at ourselves. We're not looking deep within, not even so deep, but just within ourselves to see what is going on and who we are. Yes. That's just what we're saying. Yes. And as you, because you've been doing this work for quite a long time, just even on yourself, as well as being a teacher to others, does the work ever stop? Well, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I never stop being curious. Mm-hmm. I hope I never stop being awed. I hope I never stop being amazed. You know, I think this work is infinite because who we are is infinite. Wonder is infinite. Mystery is infinite. You know, essence and true nature are infinite. So I hope it never stops. When I first work with my clients, they're so into the, the destination, right? Once I get to this weight my life will be perfect. And one of the things that I try to work with them on is about, it's about the journey. And, and, and that is, and it's because the reality is when we do get to that weight or when we do get to making that amount of money or having that much money in the bank or getting married, any of those, you know, kind of life um, bullet points on our, on our life timeline, we, we, we have this belief that, Oh, everything will be figured out, but we get there and then we expand and we grow and new windows and opportunities show themselves and new struggles do too. How do you teach, you know, the, the journey versus the destination? Well, I think we were talking about that before. Mm-hmm. Um, when we, when I said the means to the end can't be separated from the end, the process is the goal. Did I say that or am I hallucinating? possible that I didn't say that. <laughs> it's possible.
possible I only thought that. But in any case, if I didn't say that, I meant to say that. Um, um, well, we were talking about what you do as you get, quote, there is mm-hmm. who you are when you arrive there. Mm-hmm. So the process is the goal. Mm-hmm. The means to the end can't be separated from the end. And isn't it about knowing how you want to feel maybe at a certain weight and trying to feel that now? Well, I don't believe in forcing Mm -hmm. anything, but I do believe in living as if Mm -hmm. you already loved yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, walking as if you loved yourself. Getting up as if you loved yourself just so that you see the difference between how you treat yourself now and how you would treat yourself as if. As if. I like that. And is it important, Janine, to go to really go back to some of our childhood wounds to understand why? Or is it just as effective to go, this is where I am today, and this is who I am today, and being present with today? I don't think you have to go searching and hunting mm-hmm. for wounds. I think because everything is a reflection of everything else, how you are right now, your relationships right now, your relationship to yourself and food contains everything you've ever thought or felt. So it's all here now. Mm -hmm. And as you become curious about it now, if there's something you need to see and feel and experience, it will become obvious. Okay, but we don't need to go searching back for our old I don't think you need to go hunting. (laughs) (laughs) Trouble enough. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, most definitely. On <laughs> and then, right. And in, in the feeling part that you talk about in the in the book, and I remember this because I loved it, it was like, what are you feeling and, and getting that connection? And sometimes my clients do have a hard time at first feeling because they use the food to so numb themselves out. And and unlike your retreat, you know, we, these are sessions that they come back to me. So, and, um, but you, there was one words, there were some words that really just, grabbed me and it was you know what are you feeling and you use the do you feel like ashes I think it was gray ashes uh-huh. you know in that feeling and and learning to feel what goes on in our body is so important but we've been taught haven't we to learn to listen to our heads and be disconnected from our body yes so grounding and inhabiting your body is is a very important part of what I'm teaching, mm-hmm. uh, and that's also a practice like everything else. And you start by becoming aware of, of how much you're not in your body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I recommend people start with just sitting five minutes a day, five minutes a day, just sitting and breathing, becoming aware of their environment, becoming aware of the ground, literal ground they're standing on, becoming aware of their butts on the chair, becoming aware of the services that there, the, the services of the outside world, by that I mean chair, floor, um, couch, bed, are meeting the services of their body, just bringing the attention to the body. It helps to be fully aware of your entire being, to take up space really in the world. If you're operating just from your head, you're not operating from really taking up space. And and when you talk about becoming aware, is that with quieting your brain, like quieting your thoughts? 
I don't think you can quiet your thoughts. <laughs> I think what you can do. <laughs> Come on, Janine. We want to quiet those thoughts. I know. You keep saying, you keep asking me these kinds of questions like, well, well are we just supposed to sit with those feelings? And, you know, she's just supposed to like herself at 300 pounds? And are you talking about quieting your brain? And, you know. Um, <laughs> my clients ask me this. I mean, just this morning before I was on the air, I was coaching a client. She goes, my thoughts are just crazy. I go, well, those are just your thoughts. And we right. all have them. And so, yes, all these questions that I'm posing to you are what get thrown my way. And I coach with my clients through them. So, you are the, the well-known expert, so my clients all know to tune in today to listen. So they'll hear it from somebody else besides me. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so when we can't quiet our brains. Mm-hmm. What we can do is, is pay attention to our breath, mm-hmm. our bellies, our mm-hmm. sensations, rather than getting caught up in. It's sort of like think about your thoughts or each particular thought like a little tube. And if you, um, you know, or, a, or like a pipe cleaner that has sort of a hole in the middle. And if you, if you fit it on yourself like a little costume, you end up feeling so constricted. You're like in this little tube. But if it just waves by, it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. You don't have to stop it. Mm-hmm. Just are paying attention to something else, something bigger than your small little thoughts. And, and that's why being present is so important because then you're really here and now instead of so much in our thoughts and the story fondling. Yes, that's right. And that you part, see, that you know part. all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I know all the answers, but I'm, I'm a work in progress just like everybody else. Yes. And I, and I think that's the other important thing is that, you know, so often people will look to so many others and go, oh, well, they have this all figured out. You know, mm-hmm. Janine's life is just simple and easy. Nobody's got it figured <laughs> out. No, otherwise they wouldn't still be here on earth. Well, and, and that's because I, I liken it to an onion and that we just keep peeling back the layers. Uh-huh. And then my, my thought is once we peel back all the layers and then that's when we're, we move on. We're, we're done with this place that we are right now on this earth. Uh-huh. And, and, um, and as long as we're alive, there will always be work to do. Yeah, and aren't we fortunate? Because what else is there to do? (laughs) Some people would say rest. (laughs) Well, and that's part of it, too. It's not just work like that. It's sort of the process of becoming more and more and more alive. Mm -hmm. And resting, the rest activity cycle is part of that, too. Learning you know, when to put out, when to take in, when to stop, when to rest, when to relax. That's part of the learning, too. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, do you ever overeat anymore? You know, very rarely. It just doesn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. There are moments, you know, where I'll have a bite or two more, and believe me, I never thought I would live to say that ever, given <laughs> my history with food. I just never thought I would ever, ever say that. But after a while, it just loses its draw. You know, if I'm feeling lonely or if I'm feeling exhausted or if I'm feeling heartbroken or or any number of feelings, there's no point in eating Mm -hmm. at that point because it doesn't make the feeling go away. It just makes everything worse. Mm 
Uh-huh. Then, because if I eat and I'm lonely, then I'm uncomfortable in my body. And lonely still. And lonely. Yes. So I've doubled my suffering, not made it go away. <laughs> and I know that. So, and I know that beforehand. So all I have to do is look at food when, if somebody gives me some food and I'm not hungry and there's just no appeal to it, even if it's the most fabulous chocolate decadence cake that anybody's ever tasted in their whole life, if I don't want it at that moment, it doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. Now, with, with your with your food, were you tra- did you ever transfer any of your energy that went into food into something else? Into my life. I mean, what I say to women is if, if, if we could use the energy that we have funneled into our relationship with food into being alive, mm-hmm. I think we'd have the environmental crisis solved by now. <laughs> I think there would be no wars uh-huh. anymore. Be- I think women are that powerful. And yet when we've so wrapped up and, and, and shushed ourselves by getting ourselves um, tangled up in this relationship with food. It's, 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 you know, if there was, I don't believe in conspiracy theories at all, but if I did, <laughs> if I actually did think there was a master plan to all of this, how do I keep women quiet? How do I keep women from being the most powerful beings that they are, I'd, I'd say, oh, get them all upset about the size of their bodies so that they spend their entire lives trying to be different than they are, and they never have the time or energy, intelligence, and, and, and you know, sort of um, vibrancy to put their attention anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It's a distraction to our lives. Yes, it is. It's a huge distraction, and it's a big energy drain because we spend so much time focused on that. We're not living the lives that we want to live. But, but it's a huge source of suffering. That's mm-hmm. the worst part. Mm-hmm. And then again, it continues the beating ourselves down and the negative self-talk, and we just yes. spiral downwards. Uh-huh. And does it get easier? Because I do, you know, I'm, I'm a former swimmer and a coach, a sw- an athletic coach, and... Um, is it easier to spiral upwards as you practice it more? Because we t- all tend to spiral downwards pretty quickly. Um, w- when you say spiral upward, what exactly do you mean? When I mean spiral upward is just to be in more of that compassionate place, that more loving place of, and, you know, seeing how the world is and seeing the beauty in the world. So when you're in that, in that area, you continue to see that versus, you know, something may happen and it's like, oh. You know, I ate that third Girl Scout cookie, and now I'm a failure. And see, in the in which we make it mean to be all these devastating things in the end, and we just find all the evidence in our in our lives to support how we aren't worthy. Well, what starts happening is, you know, we've all read, or maybe some of us have, or at least I have <laughs> read about the neuroplasticity of the brain uh-huh. and neural circuitry and laying down new neural pathways. Mm-hmm. What happens is that. The um, the eating itself and the and it, the 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 turn to food becomes a habit for us, mm-hmm. and so we have learned habitually how to do that. Which translates in the brain as these neurons fire together along a particular path. Mm-hmm. When you start learning a new habit, what happens is that new 
pathways get established. And so that a new habit requires some effort. And, but the brain can do that and can fire along a different pathway when you start practicing something. It takes a while. I think, the, I think they said that it takes 90 days for a new pathway, I, I might, I'm not so good on the statistics part of things, but I remember this 90-day figure. Mm-hmm. When you practice something and start a new pathway, then what starts happening is that that pathway gets more greased, let's say, like a road that's traveled a lot, then another road. And then after a while, you don't, the, the brain doesn't go in that other direction. And so, yes, it becomes easier to be compassionate, to be tender, to be kind to yourself. It does become easier because now you've established a new neural pathway. Uh-huh. Yeah, I believe that. I definitely believe that, and I've read about that, too. Um, this is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It. And my guest today is Janine Roth, author of Women, Food, and God. And this is the now the takeaway section. So, Janine, if you can give my listeners a couple, you've given them a wealth of information, but a couple of takeaways that they can take away and start doing, putting into practice in their lives. I think that um, the most important thing is to understand that I'm talking about a different orientation. So it's not so much things to do. Mm-hmm. as a different relationship. It's like looking at yourself from, rather than looking at yourself, let's say we could inhabit planets. Looking at yourself from Venus, from the planet Venus, rather than from close up here on Earth. So you're taking a different, you're shifting perspective. And, you know, we all know that when those astronauts went up in space and they could see Earth, they're... Mm-hmm. Their feelings about the planet Earth, about their lives, about their families, about this wonderful human life were utterly shifted. They felt such tenderness and regard for it because they could see it in a different perspective. What I'm talking about is understanding that we need a shift of perspective. This isn't about here's what to do. Do this differently. Mm-hmm. Eat this. Don't eat that. Sit down. You know, and, and, and certainly it's also about that. It's not that it's not about that. But I could give you a list of 12,000 things to do or even just three right now. And somebody would do them for a week and then just go right back to doing what they're doing anyway. Mm-hmm. So we've all had tips. We've all had things to do. I think what we need to understand is that those are helpful once your perspective has shifted. But until you understand that the shape of your body reflects the shape of your beliefs, to change the shape of your body, you must first understanding that which is shaping it. Mm-hmm. So the work that we're talking about here is deeper, more profound than here's what I want you to do this week. Mm-hmm. That said, of course, you know, somebody could be thinking, well, okay, but still, I have to get up in the morning. What do I do? So <laughs> what I would recommend is that people start becoming aware. You know, I would recommend reading the chapter on inquiry. Mm-hmm. I would recommend underst- 
beginning to understand yourself better, living as if, treating yourself with some kindness, being curious about what you're doing instead of judgmental. Reading the chapter on the voice, because no change is possible unless you become aware of that voice that's keeping you squashed. That, that's so important. That voice is so, can be so powerful if we let it be. Yes. Yeah. Let it dictate the terms of our lives if we let it. Yeah. No, I, and I, I so, you know, shaping our bodies is shaped by our beliefs. I mean, that is so powerful. When I've told people about that from you, they, they looked at me and they went, oh, my goodness. That was a different way for them to see things. And they started shifting their perspective, too. That's right. And I think that's what has to happen first. In this book, I'm trying to bring this conversation about food to another level, mm -hmm. to a different dimension. Change the conversation that we're having, mm -hmm. which has up until now been about weight and what to do to get myself in shape. I want to change that. I want people to understand, first of all, that their relationship with food is an opening not a closing. It's a doorway, not a wall. And it's one of the great blessings of your life if you're willing to engage with yourself around it, to not try to push and manipulate and shame and force and fix yourself. Door, and it's a doorway, not a wall. I really yeah. like that. Janine, thank you so much for being a guest today, and especially after your illness this week and everything. So I really appreciate you taking the time for myself and my listeners. Yeah. Glad to do it, Corinne. Take care. This is Corinne Modokaitis, and thanks for listening to How She Really Does It at KDRT LP 95.7 FM. Our guest today was Janine Roth, author of Woman, Food, and God.